Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I realize that some of these serial killers that we've talked about are real fefnicutes. What is a fefnicute? A fefnicute is a two-faced, sneaky person. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I know lots of people who are fefnicutes, but I think that, you know, a lot of these people would fall into that category as well. I think you probably have to be one to be a serial killer. I agree. All right, moving on. Here we are. We are starting a new case. Addicted to murder. Uh, uh, uh. And our social media is... You can find us at Instagram, um, which is at Addicted to M Podcast. You can find us on our Facebook, which is Addicted to Murder Podcast. Or you can hit us up by email at addicted to murder podcast at gmail.com. And we've got a Twitter that I don't think we have anything. We on. have two followers on Twitter. Hey, that's more than we had last time. Which two is up zero. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just at addicted to murder on Twitter. Okay. There so yeah. Hit so. us up there. We've gotten a few comments this week. It's mm-hmm. been really fun to interact with kind of some of our listeners. So Thank you. Keep com- keep them coming. We like to hear from you. I think that we have three cases in our queue that have been suggested by um, followers that we're going to present on. Yes. So I think there's so after this one that we're or and anyhow we do we do do them. Let's just it might take us a little while because we do this weekly, but we you know we will you know we'll get to you. Yep, exactly. And we've got three in the back. I've ordered books on a couple of them. We're ready to go. So, anyways, it's time for our question segment. Woohoo. So, Courtney, you and I are both animal lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what animals you have and what their names are and why you name them that. Okay. Um, well, I guess I will go in chronological order. So, I have a cat named Luna. And she is a black cat. That's why we named her Luna. Okay. Moon Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, we adopted her from the Humane Society when she was just a kitten. And she's been around, ooh, nine years? I think she's nine years okay. old now. And then we've got another cat named Sebastian. Um, we just named him that because I like that name. It's um, a cute name. But he is very special. He is a tripod cat. Um, and so we rescued him um, after his sort of original owners had accidentally backed over him with a car mm. and he lost one of his legs. Mm-hmm. And so my sister-in-law, who is a vet tech, um, called and asked if we would take care of him if the, the vet that she worked at covered all of his medical bills. And so we were like, of course we will. Nice. So he's a little special, mm-hmm. but we love him. Yeah. Um, and then I've got my German Shepherd named Rika. You guys may have seen some posts of her on the social media. Um, mm-hmm. She's one of our pod dogs. And yep. she is um, almost two. She'll be two this summer. So she has lots of energy and mm-hmm. is kind of crazy. Um, and we named her Rika because apparently, according to my husband, Rika means like strong, independent woman in German. And so that's kind of what we wanted her to be if we have any german listeners who can confirm that please let us know r-i-k-a yes okay sweet that's awesome well i have 
three cats. The first name, or the first one is Sookie, and it's from the movie Igby Goes Down, not from True Blood or um, that Jack Nicholson movie with the witches, Witches of Eastwick. Um, she's 19. I got her on a pizza delivery. I was a delivery driver for a million years, and I got her there. My second cat is Scully because um, my boyfriend and I have a X-Files addiction, right? And she's um, she's probably about 12 now. And then we have Walter Payton Manning. And that is because my um, boyfriend's favorite football player is Walter Payton, and mine is Peyton Manning. So Walter Payton Manning, but he goes by Peyton. And then my mini Aussie is Mulder. He's the other pod dog, and he goes with Scully. So, you know, and he's, oh gosh, he's going to be 10 in May. So it's getting older. Yeah. But I um, can't tell sometimes. He acts like he's a little dog. I know. But, you know, I can, I can tell. Mm-hmm. But he's such a good boy. So, all right. Well, thanks for that, Courtney, letting us know all about your animals. And I'll tell you a little bit about mine. And you guys will see them in our social media because they are very important to us. They're our, they're our children. Yes, they are. Yes. Okay. Well, good question segment. It was a good one. Um, so last week we did a one and done on Juana. Yes. And um, that was fun. That was a very interesting case. And now we're starting over on a new one who we have a little more information on. But it's still kind of a mystery, this case. There's still a lot unsolved about it. And unfortunately, it may remain that way. Um, as he is no longer with us. Right. But we are going to present to you Israel Keys, whom I hadn't heard of until um, I listened to Morbid podcast a lot, and I heard the case on that, and I was just fascinated by it. I had heard of him before, but didn't know that much about him. Yeah. So this was interesting for me, too. Because it's sort of, you know, recent, you know, at least in our lifetimes, you know. Mm -hmm. so. All right, so here we go. Israel Keys was born January 7th, 1978 in a small town in Utah called Cove. His parents were from L.A., and they met there as teens, and they came together as they were both kind of like social outcasts. His mother's name was Heidi, or is Heidi, and was adopted by an older couple, and she was a bit of a loner. I don't know if this was because she was adopted or, or what. They were an older couple. They got her, you know, when they were in like their 40s or 50s. Jeffrey Keys was also a loner who wasn't into sports or, you know, going to the beach or anything like that. He just liked to, he loved to read and he enjoyed fixing things, taking things apart, putting things back together, stuff like that. And both of these um, two were of the Mormon faith. They ended up getting married in their early 20s and they both decided that they did not want to raise their children in a big city like LA or any city for that matter. So they moved to Utah and had their first of 10 children. Oh, sorry, my phone just fell. Um, The first was a girl named America in 1976, and I'm assuming because that was the bicentennial, you know. That makes sense. I I hadn't thought of that. That's just kind of what I thought when I saw that. Um, She was home-birthed. All of the children, all 10 of these children would be home-birthed. Jeff, the dad, delivered all 10 children. They didn't want to go to a hospital because of all of the rules, Um, But apparently it was more of a disbelief in modern medicine and a hatred towards doctors that that prevented hospital births. So because of this, because all of the kids were born at home, none of the 10 children had birth certificates or social security numbers. They basically did not exist in the eyes of the government. 
and the parents did not want the government to have any input on how they reared their offspring. However, at some point, the neighbors got concerned over what was going on at the Keys residence um, and called the police. So they, you know, see something, say something. They actually, you know, that's good. But because of this intrusion, the family moved to Washington State to get some cheap land and be far away from any neighbors. So here we have it again. Moving to Washington. (laughs) Something about it. I don't know what it is about Washington. So anyway, they had some money that they had saved, and they were able to buy 160 acres um, of land in Coville, Washington. Do you know where that is, Courtney, in relevance of where you lived in Washington? Have you heard of Coville? Um, I hadn't heard of Coville, but I believe it's um, more on like the eastern Mm, side of Washington. Okay. So Israel was the next born of the 10, and he recollects that being somewhere in the ages uh, between three and five, him and his family lived in a one-room cabin with no heat, no electricity, excuse me, no electricity, and no plumbing for at least seven years they lived like this. Jeff, the dad, was doing odd jobs to support the family, and he was slowly building a larger cabin for them to eventually move into. Every morning, Jeff would go into the woods for many hours just to pray. Between he and Heidi, he was the more religious of the two, although both were very much religious um, in their faith. It was known that Jeff and Heidi loved their children, but they also used them for free labor. The children had no outside friends, just several pets to play with and each other. They had no technology, no radio, TV, computer, phone, nothing. There was nothing. I mean, they, they didn't even have a light switch that worked. So, Courtney, this is a radically different upbringing than many people experience, certainly me, certainly you. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about being this isolated as a child with no friends or a way to know what's happening in the world and how that can shape that child? And also, does free labor, you know, in quotation marks, do something to young children in regards to feeling that is what their parents want them for? So this is a pretty complicated question um, with multiple parts. Um, When parents choose to raise their family in this way, you know, separate from the rest of society, they're also really removing so many choices and options um, from their children's lives. And so, you know, on the one hand, they don't really know what they're missing, right? So if this type of kind of primitive lifestyle is all they know, Um, then they don't miss things like TV or candy because they've never been exposed to the idea that these even exist. Um, And on the other hand, they don't know what they're missing because their world is so small and they are not really allowed to learn about other perspectives, new science or history, or to benefit from modern technology. And it doesn't allow kids to really learn to get along with others outside of their family or to respect differences or understand how the rest of society functions, right? So when somebody who is raised this way does leave and enter the world, it can be confusing and scary and overwhelming for them. And then as for using the kids for free labor, um, it wouldn't necessarily be harmful if that's kind of all the kids ever knew. Um, It would just kind of feel normal to them. And really, while it's maybe not something we see so much in the U.S. during modern times, you know, there's a long history of 
that just sort of being how families operate, particularly in kind of poor, more agricultural kind of societies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of this just kind of reminds me a little bit about like Amish communities, but without the community. It's like the family is the community. Right. So, Mm -hmm. well, the children were taught to read, but they were only allowed to read scriptures. They were forced to memorize many scriptures by heart. They had no new clothes, and they wore each other's hand-me-downs. Um, this included shoes, and a lot of the time they would outgrow their shoes, but they still had to wear them. Israel's toes were permanently disfigured because of this. The children would work on the farm, clean the house, babysit each other, cook, sew, etc. Israel was heavily dependent upon to do this work, and he would even braid his sister's hair. He said he wanted to be outside, but had to do all of his parenting or do most of the parenting for his siblings. His siblings very much looked up to him and needed him. They did love him very much. Courtney, this forced parenting on such a young child, can you tell us what might happen to Israel because of this? Yes, so the word for this is parentification or becoming parentified. And it happens when children are given basically adult expectations from a young age And it is not uncommon in families with many children like Israel's. It really is not possible to be an attentive mother to 10 children at the same time. There just aren't enough hours in the day. And of course, you know, newborns would require the the bulk of mom's time. So it often does fall on the shoulders of the eldest children to take on a lot of those parenting tasks. Now, the biggest problem with this, or problems, are that you know, some of those expectations that they're given are really too advanced for the level of brain development that a child has. Um, And so it sort of robs the older children of the opportunity to play and grow and learn the way that children are supposed to, right? You know, eight-year-olds, for example, are supposed to be playing tag and using their imaginations with dolls and toys, not making dinner, giving baths, and mending clothes for their younger siblings. When parentification occurs, it often results in kind of teens and adults as they get older who are either kind of too serious and anxious about things or who sort of rebel and become very self-focused and selfish as a way of trying to kind of regain control over their lives. Um, And as we'll see later, Israel was definitely the latter. The mom, Heidi, deluded herself into thinking her children loved their way of life. She felt like she was the shit for not conforming and not needing material things for her family. Um, She would continue to have children every two years for 20 years. Good grief. Because of this, during the warmer months, well, the sort of warmer months, I mean, it's Washington, um, Eastern Washington probably got pretty warm, actually. Israel and his siblings would live in a tent outside of the overcrowded cabin. In the winter months, when it was too cold, the children would visit their grandmother in Palm Springs in her trailer. I don't know how big that trailer was, but hey, Palm Springs is warm at least. So, Courtney, do you have any thoughts on this? You know, I want to have some compassion for Israel's mom because I think she truly believed she was doing what was best for her children. However, it's also really cruel of her to impose her beliefs onto her children in a way that was potentially harmful for them. You know, it could be emotionally hurtful um, if the children felt, like, rejected or not important enough to, like, earn a space inside the cabin. Um, 
And it also could have been physically harmful in exposing the kids to the elements, you know, cold and damp, insects, potential mold and fungus, wild animals. There are bears and cougars in Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to mention just the instability of it all, of like, where are you going to sleep Mm -hmm. now? Yeah, I mean, I don't, from what I've seen and researched, I don't think that at least Israel... And I know one of his sisters did not appreciate this way of life. So the family grew their own fruit and vegetables and hunted for food. None of them had even seen a dentist or a doctor, even though they would get sick and break bones. The children's ailments were treated with teas and essential oils and hot baths. Sometimes during their early years in Washington, the parents quit the Mormon church. Uh, Instead, they joined a, this is a quote, militia-based white supremacist anti-Semitic church known as the ARK, A-R-K. You guys can research this if you want to. I was a little bit afraid to do a Google search on this. It's kind of a terrorist type of thing, sounds like. Anyways. It's connected to the whole Waco. Yeah, so (laughs) Israel was 12 years old at the time and was very interested in the teachings of this church. Um, this is the same church that the infamous Kehoe brothers were a part of, both who are in prison for deadly crimes, including the torture, torture and murder of a family of three in Arkansas. In fact, Israel befriended these brothers as they lived near and were also homeschooled. They're basically their neighbors. These new friends' father was gearing up for a race war. Therefore, the brothers knew a lot about guns and how to operate them, how to build them, how to get literature on them, and how to sell them on the black market. So Israel was in heaven over this. His grandfather, at some point, had given him a fire a firearm and had taught him how to shoot. So he was just fascinated by guns and everything guns. Israel is quoted as saying, I learned all the details about guns, even if I had never seen them. It got worse when I got guns. I found out how easy it was to steal them. He would break into homes and steal guns and then sell them at swap meets. He was never asked for an ID, not that he had one, or anything like that. He was able to sell weapons as a kid. He and his favorite sister, Charity, would sometimes go for walks and shoot BB guns together at houses. If no one was home um, after they shot into the houses, they would enter and steal stuff, or they just move stuff around to kind of like screw with the people and then watch when the people came home and just to see their reactions. He and his sister also started to light fires around this time and scare animals. But his sister could not keep her mouth shut about what they were doing, and so he eventually had to stop doing things with her because he was going to get in trouble. Courtney, we're seeing a possible part of the triad. Is it odd he is doing these things with a younger sibling? What are your thoughts? What kind of diagnosis do you think we might be looking at here? I'm just asking this because so far I haven't seen, like, two people in the family doing these types of activities together. So it seems kind of interesting. Right. Um, so I very much agree that we're looking at the the dark triad here. You know, lighting fires and being cruel to animals are those kind of classic signs of psychopathy. Um, and at this point, you know, age 12 to 14, you know, I think it'd be safe a safe bet that Israel would meet criteria for conduct disorder, which is you know, the precursor to antisocial personality disorder. He's stealing, he's lying, he's lighting fires, intentionally causing at least psychological pain to others, has no remorse and doesn't respect authority. Now, involving his sister initially is not really something that's strange, you know, as siblings often just do things together and hang out. And it could have been a, hey, here's this cool thing that I like to do. Maybe you like it too, since he wouldn't know any different. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it is telling that he sort of dropped her as soon as she crossed him or got him in trouble for things. Mm-hmm. Like he knew what he was doing wasn't right. Or he would have kept doing it with her even if she would have told on him. Right. Or on each other. I don't know that she was telling on him, but she'd be like, hey, guess what we did today? Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. okay. Well, Israel did say he had a friend he would also de- do these things with. Um, it could have been one of the Kehoe boys, but per Israel, this is what he said. I shot something, a dog or a cat. He couldn't handle it. And that was the last time I did stuff with them. He said he did not understand the reaction of his friend, why he was so upset. He then threatened one of his sister's cats that was always getting into the trash. He told his sister if the cat got into the trash again, he would kill it. Well, unfortunately, the cat did get into the trash. Keys described what he did to it. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear this part. Quote, I took a piece of parachute cord and tied it to a tree, and I shot the cat in the stomach, and it ran around and around the tree and then crashed into the tree and started vomiting. And for me, I didn't really react. I actually kind of laughed a little because of the way it was running around the tree, but I looked at the kid who was my age, and he was also throwing up. Kind of traumatized, I think. And he told his dad about it. And of course, his dad talked to my parents about it, and that was pretty much the last time anyone went into the woods with me. (laughs) Courtney, I know we talked before about how many serial killers start small with animals, but I personally just don't understand how this could bring them any satisfaction. It's not the animals that hurt them. It seems so pointless, unless it's just the sadistic side of their personality being formed. What are your thoughts? You just hit it right on the head there, right? Torturing animals comes from a purely psychopathic sadism kind of place. I mean, as we just discussed, you and I are both major animal lovers, and we can't imagine doing anything like Israel did to an animal ever for any reason. Um, But it's important to remember that to Israel, these animals were just objects to be played with. He didn't have any caring feelings or empathy for them as being living things capable of pain. And he wanted to see them in pain. That's what he was going for. And it was also part of his sadistic behavior to do these things in front of other people, right? To see their reactions and presumably see them experience pain as well. Yeah, I kind of noticed that through some of the stories. Part of like what he wanted to do was see how people would react to him by the time he was 15 keys decided he needed his own place he started to build a cabin about a mile from his family's house he wanted to be alone he liked to hunt he said he would hunt anything with a heartbeat he learned through his hunting how to blend in how to be still for hours how to listen to animals and smell the animals he typically shot deer and knew how to butcher the meat he would feed his family with this Hunting for food was not what he was after, however. He enjoyed stalking the animals. It gave him a thrill to know if he were able to, like, if he were able to stalk people the way he stalked animals, that he could kill anyone, and they wouldn't even know he was there. Israel uh, got arrested for shoplifting in 1994 when he was 16 years old, which prompted his parents to search his cabin. They found lots of stolen weapons in there and insisted that he return them to the people he stole them from and chop firewood to pay back his victims of the thefts as well. Israel thought his parents were being extremely hypocritical. They knew that his hunting of deer was also illegal, but they encouraged him to do that activity because it benefited them. He did not see how shoplifting was worse. Courtney, do you have any thoughts? 
what we're kind of seeing right here is that classic way of thinking for a psychopath. You know, they don't really care about right or wrong, only about what benefits them or not. Um, but to be honest, I mean, it is a little hypocritical for his parents to be okay breaking one law, but not the others. Yeah, I agree. Soon after this, Israel told his parents that he did not believe in organized religion. And because of this, his father disowned him. Courtney, what do you think this will do to Israel? He was at one point the favored child, and now he is cast out. It's hard to say exactly how this impacted Israel, as he never really talked about his dad as an adult. You know, it's it's been suggested that his dad was maybe physically or sexually abusive towards Israel and some of the other children, um, but there's been no like evidence to back this up. It's just a theory. Um, what we can see, however, is that Israel was already distancing himself from the rest of the family, you know, building his own cabin and spending a lot of his time alone. So it may not have really seemed that important or different to him. Um, but one way it may have impacted him was his views on fatherhood, um, especially when he later on became a father himself. So Israel's parents moved to Oregon next, and after a month, Israel joined them, so he must have been allowed back in. I suppose now that his father needed his help to build a new cabin and care for the family, that was maybe part of the reason why he was allowed back. The cabin he was building, the Jeff was building, was not for his family, however. They still had to live in tents. He was building a cabin for a different family. And he was making a nice house to sell while his family lived miserably in tents in the small desert town of Maupin. I've been there. Have you been there? I have not. I've raft the Deschutes. There's a camping spot there. Anyways, it's Eastern Oregon. In 1997, the Keys family moved yet again, but this time all the way across the country to upstate New York, where Jeff bought some property that he just that he did for some reason deed to Israel, possibly as an apology. After a year, the family moved again to Maine, where they decided to become Amish. Israel was done at this point. All the moving, all the religions, all the misery of living in tents had taken its toll. He stayed in the dilapidated house in New York and studied for his GED. He really only struggled with math. He then somehow enlisted into the Army. He had no paperwork, no real identity, no social security number, no birth certificate. But somehow he talked his way in. I don't know how he managed to do that. What do you think the army um, saw in this young man that they'd let him in when he didn't technically even exist on paper? You know, I think a big part of, I think, joining the military, right, is they do some psychological testing and, and things like that. And, you know, I have not been in the military, so I am completely making this up. So it could be very wrong. Um but it's possible that, you know, seeing the the coldness and sort of the you know lack of empathy for human life um, could have been seen as a positive thing by the military, given some certain positions. Mm -hmm. Well, and also he obviously could take care of himself. He basically lived without any conveniences for most of his life. Right. In the woods. And he was tall and strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, he didn't have formal education, but he was a smart guy. Right. Exactly. So, you know. Okay. Well, that's where we're going to stop today. So just to kind of like recap just a little bit. Israel 
has come kind of a long way from being a kid in the cabin of, you know, one of 10 um, to joining the armed forces. We've already seen that he's, you know, displayed part of the dark triad, um, possibly has conduct disorder on his way to being an antisocial personality and has sadistic traits. Did I get that all? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, Israel Keys is such an anomaly in many ways, right? Because his, his upbringing in the woods and around hyper-religious and hateful no. groups. Oh, yeah. There was that cult part, too. Right? Cult. <laughs> yeah. It sort of allowed his psychopathy to develop and flourish pretty much unchecked. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, maybe there was some anger at his parents for forcing him to live that way. Um, and once he learned what he was being deprived of, of depriving him. Um, but what I really think is, I think that Israel Keys might be our first true straight up psychopath that was just born that way. Oh, interesting. It's that nurture versus nature debate. Mm -hmm. So you think it's possible to just straight up be born a psychopath. I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. I thought you had maybe tendencies, but then you probably needed those tendencies to be just perfected the right way. But you're thinking maybe there... I think it is possible. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, we will... um, This is going to be our two or three part. We're not sure yet uh, because it's an interesting case and it's going to take a different form, I think, than our regular ones just because it's, it's so bizarre in the way it came about and how he, you know, was caught and all that stuff. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I think it'll, it's, I'll definitely be an interesting ride. Yeah, for sure. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please like review, tell your friends, all that good stuff. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.